Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Minna Passman and her husband had just moved into a senior living facility when he died, suddenly, from COVID-19. He didn't suffer at the end, so I was pleased about that. But I knew I'd miss him. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. With nursing homes hard hit by coronavirus, some families are debating taking their loved ones out. And a typical coronavirus test involves a long swab stuck far up the nose. Now, researchers at Yale University are studying saliva testing. Saliva sampling is really easy. Um, It's actually incredibly easy as compared to the gold standard recommended nasopharyngeal swab. And early research shows the results are more accurate. Plus, a country musician in Rhode Island writes a catchy coronavirus tune. Six feet apart, oh, six feet under. Well, you know I got the blues. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Ten public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us on Next. I don't know about you, but it seems to me like the warm weather we had recently is making some people especially antsy and ready for social distancing to be over. But even though coronavirus hospitalizations seem to have peaked in New England, governors say they need more COVID-19 diagnostic tests to let people safely return to work. Researchers at Yale University are the latest to study a saliva test they say is easier to administer and more reliable than the standard nasal swabs. WSHU's Cassandra Basler explains. Healthcare workers wear head-to-toe protection to test someone for COVID-19. They have to sample mucus way at the back of the nasal cavity with a long swab. I've had one and they're very unpleasant. Anne Wiley is a researcher at Yale School of Public Health. The risk with that is that it can actually cause the patient or the person being sampled to sneeze or cough. And you can imagine if you're that healthcare worker, if you're in very close proximity, that can carry quite a bit of risk when we know that, you know, SARS-CoV-2 can spread by droplets. Wiley and her colleagues say they found a quick way to test for coronavirus that doesn't require protective gear or nasal swabs. Saliva sampling is really easy. Um, it's actually incredibly easy as compared to the gold standard recommended nasopharyngeal swab. She says Yale began asking COVID-19 patients and hospital workers to spit into a sterile collection cup when the outbreak began. They continued to run RNA tests on nasal swabs alongside saliva samples. They found the saliva results look more consistent. The numbers of negatives in the swab itself have far outnumbered the negatives in saliva. So to us, it is looking more reliable. Yale isn't alone. Wiley says small studies out of New Jersey, California, Australia, and Thailand have shown similar success with saliva. Hopefully with that increased data from around the world and more studies testing this and trialing it out, you know, we'll get that confidence that we can move forward. Wiley worked on this study with Dr. Albert Coe, one of Connecticut's advisors to help the state reopen safely. 
Wiley and Co. think screening with saliva tests could be a reliable way to make sure workers do not spread the virus to customers or colleagues. You know, if we're sending especially workers back into like hospital settings, healthcare settings, that's one particular population that you want to make sure are actually truly negative and not negative due to the sample type that's being taken or the test that's being run. Wiley says scientists do not know if other tests for virus antibodies can prove someone is immune to coronavirus. And antibodies show up when someone is still contagious. So diagnostic spit tests may be a better way to track and limit new outbreaks. And it's one Wiley's already testing at Yale New Haven Hospital. The healthcare workers are sampling themselves every three days for testing just to make sure that they are remaining COVID-free. She says companies could also consider at-home saliva testing, especially for frontline workers in restaurants or grocery stores. For now, the spit test could save time at drive through test sites or help neighborhood health clinics use less protective gear. It does hold a lot of promise, you know, it will take off the pressures on the supply chain. This could be widely implemented very easily. Wiley says saliva samples could allow for increased testing capacity across the country. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cassandra Basler. The prospect of saliva tests entering the supply chain and working well is positive. But that doesn't address the testing shortage right now. And if everyone's still short on testing supplies, that means states have to compete with each other to claim whatever testing equipment they can get their hands on. Michael Ulrich is assistant professor of health policy and law at Boston University, and he joins me to talk about that competition between New England states. Professor Ulrich, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. How does the supply chain work and how does competition come into play? So there are multiple elements to it. So there's the tests themselves, which, um, you know, are are difficult enough to come by. And and I should say there's both diagnostic testing. um, You know, do you have the disease right now? And there's also antibody testing. Have you been exposed? Did you have it? But you also need... Um, supplies and materials. You need swabs, you need reagents, you need machines, you need PPE. Um, You need labs that um, can actually run the tests and, you know, are they backed up? And so it's not just a competition even necessarily for can you acquire a test or enough tests, but it's can you acquire all of these different elements that are needed to both test a large enough uh, you know, amount of people in your state and then actually be able to run those tests and get accurate results back. And right now, as far as you know, I can tell, there's still a lot of problems in kind of each of those areas. What are states doing to try to beat their neighbors to get to these supplies? Sure. I, I mean, the, the most simple one is, is paying more money. And, and so one of the problems that this creates is you're right, you're competing against each other, which, which creates issues of some states have obviously more resources than the other. Um, but when you're competing with other countries or you're competing with the federal government, there aren't very many states that have the resources to be able to compete with them. And so we saw this in uh, when PPE and ventilators were um, kind of the thing that was that people were uh, states were clamoring for the most that, um, you know, Kentucky's governor said they had a bid in and the federal government came in and FEMA, um, you know, outbid them. And so um, so it it becomes really difficult for states to 
figure out ways outside of, do you have enough money? Can you outbid the people that are also competing for those supplies? It seems like this is not a great model for accessing testing equipment to basically say the highest bidder gets what they need to take on this public health crisis, right? Uh, No, certainly not, especially when you consider the fact that right now we are in an economic crisis as well as a public health crisis. And so states that had less resources are the ones that are also likely suffering even more from, um, you know, the declining economy. And so that's why federal coordination is is really key here to one prevent this sort of outbidding but to prevent more importantly the disparities between states but also within states if you're unable to acquire as many tests as you'd like to have then you have difficult decisions on who to use those tests for and that too can create um, disparities again not about what's the best way to do it but sometimes you know who maybe has access that other people don't Okay, so let's talk about federal coordination, which which really hasn't been existent when it comes to testing so far in this country. But is there a better way that we could have done this in terms of distribution? Is it that federal coordination? Well, I think there are certainly advantages to a federally coordinated process. Now, again, the feds can't do everything. They you need still state and and more importantly local officials to be administering and and, uh, running these. But what it could look like is the federal government being able to, as we said before, instead of states with the most resources getting the supplies, it would be states perhaps that need the supplies the most getting them. Moving forward, what are you going to be keeping an eye on? Um, One of the things that I'm keeping an eye on is the disparities. We've already seen that racial minorities um, uh, tend to have higher rates and morbidity. And and so, again, when we're thinking about testing specifically, my concern is about where those tests are going to potentially go. Michael Ulrich is Assistant Professor of Health, Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at Boston University. Michael, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was recently announced that Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island have joined a six-state consortium that will band together to buy testing supplies. They'll also buy medical and personal protective equipment together. This is an attempt to stabilize the supply chain and prepare for a possible second wave of the virus, according to the Connecticut Mirror. In a statement, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, who was part of the consortium, acknowledged that competition for equipment drove prices up. This consortium, I think, will help us get the equipment and get it at a better price. Masks are another crucial piece of equipment in short supply, particularly N95 masks for nurses and doctors. Some hospitals have had to sanitize masks for reuse to make up for the shortage. But researchers are unsure how safe that is. WBUR's Beth Healy has this report. Richard Peltier is a researcher at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. The campus is nearly deserted these days due to the coronavirus. I don't think there's anyone else in the building today.
then we've entered the lab. Peltier is going into the lab to test N95 masks. He's hearing from medical professionals on the front lines, caring for patients for COVID-19. Some are worried. They used to throw these masks away after one use. Now hospitals are sending them out for cleaning. One of the concerns that we have is if these masks aren't designed to be reprocessed like this, does it degrade the performance of the mask? And so that's what we're testing, whether the virus particles or any particles for that matter can get through the mask. An Ohio contracting giant called Battelle has developed a process it says makes it safe to clean and reuse a mask 20 times. It got emergency approval from the Food and Drug Administration, and it's sanitizing masks in Boston and numerous other cities. Here it's used by Massachusetts General Hospital, along with other partners' healthcare hospitals. But the FDA's approval contains some caveats. One is that cleaning masks is allowed only because there aren't enough new ones. Another says Battelle cannot, quote, represent or suggest that this product is safe or effective for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. We draw the air pollution through the face masks at a really high flow rate, so we have to use a bunch of vacuum pumps to make sure that the flow rate's at the right speed. I'll turn those on now. It's sometimes a struggle to get the mask to fit on the mannequin head correctly, but it's really important as I struggle to get this mask on to get a nice tight fit so we're sure there isn't any leaking around the mask. Peltier is testing air pollution on masks that have been sterilized in different ways to see if the fibers wear down and if masks lose effectiveness. He's also looking to get his hands on some masks that have already been through the Battelle system. One of the problems I see with Battelle is that when they test whether the masks continue to work, they used a fairly crude measurement of, of whether the mask was collecting particles or not. By that he means you have to test tiny particles to know whether the virus can get through. But Battelle and some political backers persuaded the FDA that cleaning masks was urgent, in part because there was no alternative. When the regulators first said Battelle could launch by cleaning 10,000 masks a day at its headquarters, Ohio's governor went to President Trump for help. Hours later, the FDA relented. Battelle got the green light to clean 80,000 masks a day at 60 sites across the country, and it landed a $415 million federal contract to do the work. From a decontamination perspective, you might be able to, to do it at 20 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. However, these masks are developed to be single-use. People need to understand that. That's Vincent Munster. He's a scientist at a Montana lab run by the National Institutes of Health. His team conducted a quick study on four different ways of cleaning N95 masks and found they all worked and said the way Battelle does it is best. But they only tested the cleaning three times. You need to know what the strain on that mask is. And I personally don't think you should push that. So while the fabric of the masks can be sanitized many times, the mask itself can wear down, Munster says. The fibers can degrade and the masks can lose their tight fit, which is critical to safety. One thing everyone seems to agree on, the elastic bands that hold the masks on your face break down after 20 cleanings or less. Munster won't say whose advice medical workers should take on how many times to reuse a mask. As for himself, if he had to wear the masks? Based on our results, I would, I would probably do three times. That's three times. Munster made clear that that's his personal view, not that of the federal government. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Beth Healy. Coming up. 
Nursing home residents make up a huge percentage of coronavirus victims. Now some families are wondering if they should bring their loved ones home. Plus, Vermont's worried about out-of-state visitors increasing the spread of coronavirus. So they launched a traffic monitoring effort to find out who is coming to the state. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back to the show. I'm Morgan Springer. Senior living facilities have emerged as hotspots of the coronavirus pandemic. In Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, at least 60% of all COVID-19 deaths have happened in these facilities. Now, some families are wondering if their loved ones would be safer outside these senior residences. WBUR's Amelia Mason has the story of one family's decision to bring their mother home. In March, not long after Bill Passman's parents moved into an assisted living residence in Maryland, his 94-year-old father developed a cough. At first, the family didn't think much of it, even though fears about the coronavirus had recently sent the facility into lockdown. Bill was more concerned about helping his parents figure out how to use Zoom so the family could still talk. He did, well, he did get him to click on the Zoom link, joined it, and the audio wasn't working. So Bill, who lives in Lexington, Massachusetts, bought his parents a new Chromebook. He sent his brother to deliver it. Literally as he's getting to the door to hand it inside so they can wipe it down and take it up to their room, an ambulance pulled up. And that was for my dad. Bill's father was running a fever, and the facility thought he could have the coronavirus. At the hospital, his condition deteriorated, and he died that night. Bill's brother, Hap, was allowed to visit their mother, Minna, in quarantine to break the news. So the only way I could visit mom was what? What was I wearing? A hospital gown, a mask, and everything. So that's how I'm grieving with mom, with a cap and a gown and gloves and a mask. After that, Minna was confined to her room, grieving the loss of her husband of 70 years alone. We didn't suffer at the end, so I was pleased about that. But I knew I'd miss him. A test confirmed that her husband had had the coronavirus. Minna showed no symptoms, but she needed to remain isolated for two weeks, just in case. That's when her son, Bill, really started to worry. She was, you know, lethargic, dozing, bored, and uh, not happy. The family was concerned about Minna being isolated and depressed in a facility under quarantine. Her son, Hap, and his wife wanted to take her in. But Bill says it was a tough decision. We are concerned about our ability, my brother's ability, to manage medications. You know, whether they, if she fell, whether they could pick her up properly. These are questions that a lot of families are asking. In Massachusetts, more than half of COVID-19 deaths have been at nursing and rest homes. Nearly 150 of the state's assisted living facilities have reported confirmed cases of the virus. And these statistics have families very concerned, says Kate Granigan, the CEO of Life Care Advocates, a Newton company that advises families about geriatric care. Given the environment in these places and the likelihood of COVID-positive residents or clients and the challenges of not being able to see their loved one, people are 
contemplating whether they should be bringing their loved one home. The state has released guidelines for families considering taking loved ones out of senior housing. But so far, there's been no mass exodus from the state's senior living facilities. Here's Granigan. If someone's coming home and they now need 24-hour care and assistance, and a family member is going to try to provide that, that is uh, in itself a big challenge. And getting caretaking help is expensive. Granigan says despite fears about the virus and the isolation of quarantine, few families are choosing to remove relatives from senior housing. Most people just can't take care of loved ones at home. But the Passmans decided they had to give it a shot. Minna's son, Hap, had room in his house, and her insurance pays for a home health aide to visit every few days. Bill Passman says, so far, it's working out. I think the day she moved in, it seemed like she got 15 years younger. It was such a dramatic shift. I think all of us cried. It's not a permanent fix. Once the crisis ends, the family plans to move Minna back into assisted living, where she can be part of a community. But right now... She's pretty happy to be home. That was WBUR reporter Amelia Mason. One of the deadliest known outbreaks in the U.S. is at Soldier's Home in Holyoke, Massachusetts. More than 70 residents died after contracting COVID-19, and many more residents and staff have tested positive for the virus. The Veterans Home is now under federal investigation. Another nursing home that's been hit hard is Kimberly Hall North in Windsor, Connecticut. Since the coronavirus outbreak, at least 43 deaths have been linked to COVID-19 at the facility. That's according to Dave Altamari. He's an investigative reporter for the Hartford Current. And Dave joins me from his home to talk about the reporting. Thanks for coming on the show, Dave. Hey, Morgan. How are you doing? I'm good. So, Dave, for your article, you spoke to the families of 16 people who died at the facility. And you start the piece with the story of Etta Hayden. You talk about who she was and what happened to her. So, so tell us what did happen. Uh, I talked to Etta's daughter, Erin Hayden, um, who used to go visit her mom every week. Uh, obviously, that was stopped when uh, at the beginning of March when they stopped people from coming in. The family couldn't visit her. And eventually, she, she died on April 13th after almost three weeks of fighting the virus. And she was one of three people who died on April 13th. Uh, that was a particularly bad week for the home. They, there was 13 people that died in five days. Wow. And that's of 43 deaths like to COVID-19 at Kimberly Hall North. Do you know what percentage of the residents that is? Uh, there's roughly about 120 uh, people in there right now. So it's slightly over a third. There's another depending on who you listen to, another 30 or so people who are have tested positive. The facility has actually hired a private lab and has now tested everyone. They were very critical of the state. Uh, Genesis, uh, the chief medical officer, did an interview with us, and he was very critical of the state. They actually went to the state when they had their first positive test before anybody died, asked for help in testing everyone and got six tests to do. Uh, so they they were hoping, I think, to be able to test everyone and figure out how widespread it was before it spread through the building. So the facility basically points the finger at the state and says, we asked for tests, you didn't give us enough tests. What does the state have to say about that? 
Um, at the time that they were asking in early March, the state frankly didn't have any tests. Um, well, they had very few and they were only testing people in hospitals at that point. To be fair to the state, no one had tests at that point. That, that's one of the big uh, failings, uh, frankly, nationally, that, that we did not have testing available earlier. Even if the facility didn't have enough tests from the Department of Health, could the facility have done more to separate patients under the assumption that some of their residents had COVID-19? I think what ended up happening here is literally so many had it that it would have been hard to do. Uh, Initially, I think that they probably were slow to react to the fact that the first patient that died was in their dementia unit. And some of the families that we talked to said clearly at that point, they should have known that this was going to become a big problem and that it would spread quickly, um, which is exactly what happened. What else did you hear from the family members when you spoke to them? You know, how, how did they feel the staff at Kimberly Hall North had handled the outbreak in the situation? A wide variety, actually, Morgan. Some people had nothing, nothing but complimentary about how the staff dealt with their loved one. And they kind of felt that once it got in the building, there was not a lot that could be done. Um, some people were upset that they, they felt they weren't properly informed that their loved one had COVID. In some cases, they were never tested. They're assumed, presumed to have died from COVID-19. Wow. So ultimately, when people read your article in the Hartford Current or hear about what's happening at this nursing home, what do you want people to walk away understanding? Kimberly Hall is, is an example of what's going on in practically every state in the, in the country. You know, once the virus gets into these facilities, it's deadly. And I think probably when all said and done, 60 to 70 percent of the people who die from this disease are going to be nursing home patients or, you know, elderly people. Dave Altamari is an investigative reporter for the Hartford Current in Connecticut. Thanks for sharing your reporting with us, Dave. All right. Thanks, Morgan. Dave says he thinks the number of COVID-19 deaths at Kimberly Hall North has now risen to 46 since he first published his story. So far, at least, Vermont seems to have done a good job at slowing the spread of COVID-19. But neighboring states like New York and Massachusetts are coronavirus hotspots. Vermont Governor Phil Scott says his biggest worry now is that visitors from those areas will bring the virus with them to the state. And as Vermont Public Radio's Peter Hirschfeld reports, the governor's administration has launched an unprecedented traffic monitoring effort to find out just how many out-of-staters are coming to the Green Mountains. All right, we go to New York, New York, Vermont, Massachusetts, New York. I'm standing in a grassy field next to Route 4 in Fairhaven. It's smack dab on Vermont's border with New York, and I'm not the only one counting cars here. There's two, so they're doing each direction in this location. So they're doing inbound and outbound. That's Rob Faley from the Agency of Transportation. He says the guys sitting in the pickup trucks on each side of this four-lane highway have been here since 6 this morning. They have one job and one job only, 
to log the name of the state on each and every license plate crossing into Vermont from New York and vice versa. They're tracking the percentage of in-state license plates versus out-of-state license plates. This is one of 28 border crossings being monitored for 14 hours a day by the Agency of Transportation. It's a massive data gathering operation that began on April 1st, and it involves more than 50 AOT maintenance workers who have suddenly found themselves on the front lines of their state's defense against COVID-19. You see we've got, you know, portalettes for all of them, and we do drive around. We have relievers that go around, give them, you know, a half-hour break in the middle of the day so they can you know, grab a bite to eat and just take their eyes off the road for a few minutes. The growth rate of COVID-19 in Vermont is now among the slowest in the nation. The same cannot be said of New York and Massachusetts, however, and while coronavirus-related deaths in each of those states have been on the decline in recent days, Governor Phil Scott says the COVID-19 hotspots there are still raging. You know, my biggest fear is that we'll have uh, a few of those embers come into the state and then erupt, and we're not prepared for them. And then we have a Uh, full-blown pandemic right in our own backyard. On March 30th, Scott ordered anyone coming into Vermont from outside the state to self-quarantine for 14 days. Two days later, the Agency of Transportation began its new car counting mission. And according to Scott's communications director, Rebecca Kelly, the numbers have been encouraging. Uh, And nothing that's raised to the level of thinking we're seeing a huge influx or a major change in inbound visitors. Kelly says the data is a big reason Scott decided not to institute some of the more restrictive travel limitations seen in other states. Looking at some things that other states did around having the National Guard out um, is something that we were seeing happening in other states and that we were seeing some calls for here in Vermont. Um, So this was really about getting a sense of, of whether we needed to explore other options. Options like the one featured in this TV news story from Rhode Island last month. And here in southern New England, some residents are concerned about people from New York coming here and potentially spreading the virus. And starting tomorrow, Governor Gina Raimondo has ordered the National Guard to go door-to-door in coastal communities looking for people from New York. And today, state troopers began pulling drivers over if they have New York license plates. The license plate data gathered by the Agency of Transportation isn't perfect. Faley says they have no way of knowing how long out-of-staters stay in Vermont or what they're doing while they're here. Of the nearly 1.6 million inbound plates counted so far, nearly half were from somewhere other than Vermont. The state recently scaled back the total number of border checkpoints, but Scott doesn't have any immediate plans to stop counting visitors from states with more serious COVID-19 infection rates. They're still seeing a number of deaths. Uh, They're still seeing positive cases. Uh, So this isn't over for them, and they are literally in our backyard. And based on the border monitoring data, coming to Vermont's front yard, too. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Peter Hirschfeld. Just about every week since the pandemic forced schools to close, we've been talking about how distance learning is going for students and parents. This week, we caught up with Ramona Santos. Her daughter is in middle school in Providence, Rhode Island, and has a disability. In addition to helping her daughter at home, Ramona helps other parents of color. She's the executive director of the organization Parents Leading for Educational Equity in Rhode Island. Ramona joined us back in March on a regional call-in show when her daughter was doing well with distance learning, but many of the parents Ramona helps were struggling. I started out by asking her how things are going now for her daughter. 
Well, at the beginning, I think we got lucky. My daughter has multiple disabilities. And at the beginning, it was not as stressful. The first few days were stressful, but then she became, she started to feel more comfortable with, you know, with just doing the distance learning. But the last three weeks, really her mental health uh, has, you know, um, suffered. She has expressed being very anxious because of, you know, the, the workload that she's having. And she feels that school is for passing, not for learning. You are the executive director of the organization Parents Leading for Educational Equity, or PLEA. That organization supports parents of color to have some decision-making power. And I'm wondering, in your conversations with the parents that you work with, what are, they, what are the challenges they're still facing? Well, this morning, the first call I got was at 8 a.m. from a parent that I have been working since the beginning of distance learning. And you know, she expressed being really, really stressed out about the workload. And, you know, that's a different level of challenges when you have an I when your child has an IEP and all of those services that come with it. And, and just for our listeners, um, an IEP is an individualized educational plan, which basically is a plan for a child's uh, special education experience. Go ahead. Yes. So she was very stressed out. And I think those challenges remain. And I think they will remain because it's it's very difficult to provide those services, you know, and coach a parent at home. And I also, the language barrier continues to be an issue. Um, So the computer literacy is another issue. If a parent is not knowledgeable on how to manage, you know, use a computer, I don't think you can learn that in, you know, in a couple of weeks. So I think those are the those challenges are going to remain until the very end of distance learning. One of the things you had talked about back in March was that you had emailed the school district in Providence to ask how they would be supporting parents who don't speak English. And they told you they were going to be hiring translators. H- has that happened? Yes. Yeah, so they have a new software that teachers can communicate with parents. And what I know that parents have shared is that they are really hearing more from the school. The other thing that I think has been really um, important that I have heard from parents is that they're communicating with teachers in a better way. Last fall, the U.S. Department of Justice had found that Providence Public Schools um, had failed to properly educate English language learners. Um, And after that, the state took over the district. It sounds like from you that you feel like they're they're trying very hard. And is there any indication that patterns are repeating themselves or is this really a new way forward with the district? I, I am in between. <laughs> I think there is political will right now to do what it takes to, you know, to better the district. That I am sure of. But Again, I think that what I want to see is concrete things. I, I don't want to see more uh, posts about what, how well things, because things are going, some people are having a great experience or a good experience with distance learning, but multilingual language are not, are, are going to be struggling because if they were struggling in the classroom, you cannot tell us that they are going to be doing well at home. Right now, I'm part of a group uh, that is working with the Department of Education on a blueprint for multilingual language. So, you know, the the effort is there, and I'm excited to be part of that group with, you know, educators, community members, um, 
people, you know, from the district to, and a state, this is a statewide, to develop a blueprint for multilingual language. So, you know, when I see those things, I, I get hopeful and excited. You know, I think parents are, have, are organizing um, and are really getting to understand where we are in the, in the system and how can we be effective? How can we get decision making? Because if we are going, we are the ones who are in this community and we need to have a say. That was Ramona Santos, the executive director of Parents Leading for Educational Equity in Rhode Island and mother of a middle schooler in the Providence Public School District. After the break, a punk rocker turned country musician writes a clever coronavirus song. And we hear from high school seniors missing out on their spring sports season. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Since the coronavirus outbreak, we've been asking you to share stories and comments, and we've really been enjoying your responses. Last week, a listener named Kristen from Manchester, Connecticut, answered our question about how she's been reacting to other people's behavior during the pandemic. They've been wonderful out in the parks by keeping their distance, but I really, really wish whoever is out there with a basement full of wipes and disinfectant spray would give some of it back to the stores. Please leave some for the rest of us. If you want to chime in and talk about how you're feeling about other people's behavior, the New England News Collaborative is partnering with our member station, WCAI, and America Amplified to put on a regional call-in show that gets at that heightened tension between residents and out-of-staters during the pandemic. It will air on your local station this coming Thursday at 1 p.m. Do you remember that story a number of years ago about how President Barack Obama spent his evenings at the White House? One salient detail was the supposed seven almonds he would eat each night for snack. He later said he was not such a rigid guy and did not actually count the almonds out. But that's not the point. The point is, there's something oddly satisfying about hearing people's routines. And right now, most of our routines have changed. Some of us have developed new habits. So tell us what your routine looks like right now, from small telling details, like the almonds, to big new projects that are filling large portions of your day. Leave your comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. That's next at ctpublic.org. We look forward to hearing from you. If you followed Boston's punk rock scene in the 1980s and early 90s, you might recognize the voice of Bob LaRue, lead singer of the Busted Statues. Today, Bob lives in Cranston, Rhode Island, and sings country. And like everyone, he's thinking about the coronavirus. So much so, he's written a song about it that's likely to get your foot tapping. Alex Noons of The Publix Radio tells the story. When the coronavirus started heating up weeks ago, Bob LaRue was texting with his bandmates and the Almighty Cowboys about whether to meet for practice. 
Sure, someone said, so long as we stay six feet apart. That gave Bob an idea for a song. I just started writing the song. It was all written within just a matter of minutes. Six feet apart, oh, six feet under. Well, you know I got the blues. There's pain in my heart, but I'm going yonder. Lord, I want to spend my time with you. His band didn't get together in the end. So Bob turned to his family and recorded the song with his wife Marta on bass and son Jackson on lap steel. That was the reason why we recorded it as a family, because we're here together, we got nowhere to go, and uh, I thought it would be just a really fun song for the family to record. Right now, Bob's off from work as a residential contractor, so he's got time for creative pursuits and thinking. He says he may have scribbled down his song C-19 Blues in a few minutes, but as he considers it more, he thinks the lyrics have a deeper meaning than he may have realized at first. You know, it sort of comes out of that country tradition of love and longing and, you know, loyalty, being together and staying together, even though things are tough. Bob says he's getting positive feedback about the song from people online, but he doesn't expect he'll turn to the coronavirus much more for artistic inspiration. If he does, he says, it will be after the pandemic's passed and people are ready to come together again in person to enjoy some good company and good music. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alex Nunes. The artist duo of Wade Kavanaugh and Stephen B. Nguyen has worked on public art together for the last 15 years. Most recently, they won a million-dollar public art commission for the new Washington Convention Center in Seattle. But collaboration is hard while maintaining appropriate social distancing. And Kavanaugh worries that COVID-19 may be an existential threat to artists who focus on public works. We start in his studio in Maine, where he's making models for the major commission with his kids. We're trying to put everything we have into it because um, it's, it's the first big commission that we've gone and, and it could be the last. My name is Wade Kavanaugh. I'm an artist and I live in Bethel, Maine. Bill, you want to help her? No, I can do it. So we wanted to make this, this artwork that kind of imbued this sense of change. So it's going to be these series of like giant old growth trees that are kind of twisting down the underside of this cantilevered platform. And we're really excited about, about what we've got planned, but we also really want the opportunity to execute the project. They're worried about labor and they're worried about materials not being available. So we're, just, we're seeing really uh, inflated prices already kind of c- coming at us. Steve and I both kind of feel like the golden age of public art is probably coming to a close. I hope we the economy gets through this and and there continues to be um, you know wide ranging support for the arts, but I feel like the arts are are typically one of the things that gets trimmed first. 
so much of the, you know, conceptually based artwork now has moved into social practice. And when you're not allowed to be social, it, it really, um, it really changes the dimension of what artists are able to do. It's like Steve and I's practice is founded on this idea of collaboration. Because we're together and because we're working through an idea, our work goes to this completely other place. And that's what we've kind of cherished over the last 15 years of working together. And so now that's like, it's really gotten, it's just much harder. We're basically just on the phone with each other. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go try this. And sending pictures and he's modeling stuff and sending that back and he's sending dimensions it challenges the magic that that we found in our art practice Good. i i feel actually really lucky that i have this deadline because because there's clarity in what i have to do every day if i were just waking up and facing another day without an agenda i would feel somewhat lost i think it's been pretty amazing to see how many people have moved their practice into, you know, virtual studio visits or they're just, it's just incredible how much people are sharing right now. That was Wade Cavanaugh discussing his collaborative art practice with Stephen B. Nguyen and the struggle to produce public art during a pandemic. Maine Public Radio's Willis Ryder-Arnold produced that piece. On Tuesday, Connecticut joined the ranks of other New England states, canceling school till the end of the year and the spring sports season with it. No baseball or softball, no track and field, no tennis. For athletes who are seniors, it's another blow to the end of high school. In Boston, WGBH's Esteban Bustillos has more. In late April, the Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association officially shut down any hope of high school sports happening in the state this spring. That decision didn't come as a shock for many. What really stung was Governor Charlie Baker's announcement just a few days prior that campuses would not be reopening this semester. Baker acknowledged how much this would impact everyone, especially seniors. They've all worked hard for four years, and they look forward to the so-called last season. Whether it's to play lacrosse, run track, participate in a school play, go to the prom, graduate. For senior athletes, their last season is something special. For those like Paul Guiney, a pitcher and catcher at Catholic Memorial in West Roxbury, they're having to deal with losing what they've pursued for so long. Like graduation, like prom, all those ceremonies are nice, but baseball was something that you really, I was really worked for. And it's been with me my whole life. So like coming up, this was, this was the goal to really play varsity and succeed at varsity level and, and enjoy my time here. Last season, Catholic Memorial got knocked out in the second round of the state playoffs. Guiney and his squad had worked all summer and winter for another opportunity. That's why even with prom and graduation, Guiney was looking forward to the baseball season the most out of any event scheduled this spring. Those other moments are, are fun, but when you look back at them, they're just one one snippet. Baseball, as this whole would be, it's, it's this whole journey that didn't have the right ending. 
it just has like an asterisk on it. Hal Carey, Catholic Memorial's baseball coach, says most good players typically only get two years on varsity, three if they're exceptionally talented. I don't begrudge those guys. Like I don't, I don't think it's being selfish to feel badly about missing those things. I think our guys have it in perspective. They know there are far worse things than missing your senior season. But certainly as a 17 or 18-year-old kid, when you look at some of the stuff you're missing um, and you're never going to get back, uh, that's a tough pill to swallow for them. For Paige Lemieux, the athletic director at Charlestown High School, sports play a large part in the life of her students. I think it definitely drives a lot of students' academic success. So when that's taken away, it creates a whole different avenue of trying to get creative to find success for them. She says for the seniors, the one thing they want more than anything is simple, pictures. I've reached out to almost every senior so far and kind of checked in to be like, you know, what would what would you want to feel like you really got to like close out your senior year of your sport, not just, you know, graduation or your senior year of high school, but of your sport. And a lot of them have literally just said they want a chance to be with their team and take pictures in their uniform. Charlestown High's boys outdoor track team is the Boston City League's reigning champion and was looking forward to defending its title. Ricardo Darius had run track for Charlestown since he was a freshman. He wanted the chance to repeat and get photos with another championship banner in his hands. But that's not going to happen. He can't even get his senior photos done professionally. He had to resort to taking them on his own at home with an iPhone. This might not have to do with school, but like was when like everything shut down, the barbershop was closed. So I was like, dang, on top of that, I have to take senior photo with a bad haircut or a do-rag on. And that, yeah, it just, yeah, it sucks, man. 2020 is not, yeah, it really sucks. Your senior year of high school is supposed to be one of the best years of your life. For athletes, it's when memories are as precious as playing time. But now... Even something as simple as one last photo could make all the difference in the world to seniors whose seasons the coronavirus has wiped off the calendar. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Esteban Bustillos. Thanks for joining us this week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.